This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and uh, it's great to always do the podcast, even though uh, the last couple of weeks have been difficult weeks, I'd say, for the world. Of course, I'm referencing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I was thinking about doing a podcast episode about Ukraine, mostly because I, I have a little bit of a connection there and... Uh, have been thinking a lot about Ukraine. It's frankly taken me just a couple of weeks to be able to put thoughts together because um, it's been a bit traumatic uh, watching events happening there. I lived in Ukraine. I speak Ukrainian. I have friends in Ukraine that I that I speak to still on an almost weekly basis. Um, as far as I'm aware, they're all safe, although I haven't heard from one of my friends for about a week. Um, and I don't know if she and her two daughters are out of harm's way. They live in one of the more southern cities of the country, Zaporizhia, which is sort of in the, in the way of the Russian army currently, just north of where a lot of the fighting is happening in the city of Mykolaiv. And so, uh, I thought that, and of and because of those connections, I've for many years it's been a a topic that's a little bit of a pet topic for me. I keep tabs on I keep tabs on the news in Ukraine. I keep tabs on events that are happening there. Um, the last time I was there was just before what was the Orange Revolution, uh, and at the time you could tell that people were beginning to sort of take their their protest um, and street politics more seriously. So you would see large gatherings of people protesting in the streets um, before the the Orange Revolution really kicked off in in full force. So uh, certainly since then, I've watched Ukrainian politics and that part of the world very closely. Um, And again, because I have that bit of a, a connection to the country. It was it was additionally interesting to me also because um, of the friends and people that I know there. Um, it's, it's always been a topic that's very close to me, but the last few weeks have been horrible for the Ukrainian people um, and on a much, much lesser scale, uh, of course, for me, uh, quite traumatizing and anxiety-ridden. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about What's happening there, even though this is a topic slightly off of the normal theme for the podcast, um, again, just because I've been thinking about it a lot, and I think there are some connections to, uh, say, wealth and personal finance and things like that, uh, that that do cross over with even what is happening in Ukraine, even setting aside some of the sanctions, for example, that have been placed on the country. So um, first and foremost... It's a, it's a humanitarian crisis of incredible proportions. I think I saw the estimate today was something like 2 million people have fled the country almost exclusively to countries that are to the west of Ukraine. Very, very few 
of the two million have fled, for example, to Belarus or to Russia, which probably is about all you need to know to know how people in Ukraine feel about Belarus and Russia right now, that while Russia is quote unquote liberating Ukrainians, Ukrainians, Ukrainians are not fleeing to Russia for safety. Um, and obviously, I, I say that slightly tongue in cheek. That's that's clearly the intent, and clearly the facts are that Russia is the aggressor in this conflict, and and people view Russia as the aggressor in the conflict. Uh, Russia has been shelling residential areas, hospitals, schools, civilians who are trying to flee. They've been shelling uh, evacuation routes. So on, and some cities have essentially been cut off. The city of Mariupol is now uh, essentially des- deserted as far or or cut off from the world as far as its ability to get additional aid and support. And effective uh, evacuation corridors are not available to people in Mariupol, and so it's a, a tremendously bad situation in that city, as it is a tremendously bad situation in many other cities. Um, Some of the cities such as Kharkiv and Sumy and certainly suburbs of Kyiv have been shelled relentlessly. And, you know, the shells are hitting residential blocks, towers of buildings indiscriminately. And of course, these are buildings that people ordinarily would be living in. Hopefully people are being evacuated from the buildings before the shelling begins, but there's no real military strategic reason that a country would be shelling those areas other than to cause fear and panic, which they're doing, uh, if that's what they're trying to do, I'm sure they're doing a fair job of it. Um, So, you know, that gets me thinking about the, uh, say, 38 million or so people still in the country. It's difficult to provide aid directly to them, although, frankly, you can, if you want, donate directly to the Ukrainian armed forces. I think they have a GoFundMe page, and I believe they have, or certain of the government agencies in Ukraine actually have um, uh, cryptocurrency and money transfer instructions. If you search for them, you can find them or they'll take donations directly. Um, But it got me thinking about the 2 million mostly women and children who have fled the country and um, how it is that if somebody was inclined to help them, you could help them. There are many resources available to help. So uh, there's a couple of organizations that do a good job of consolidating some of these resources where you could find, if you were inclined to give, uh, organizations that are helping refugees. So for example, Global Giving has a Ukraine fund and Global Giving um, has funds for many uh, places around the world. Of course, Ukraine just being one of them where uh, assistance is needed, and there are many different uh, Ukrainian charities and charities that that service Ukrainian refugees listed through their Ukraine Fund <clears throat> site. Excuse me. In addition to that, the UN um, Council on Refugees (UNHCR), if you're trying, or Refugee Agency, sorry, UNHCR, also has uh, useful resources. They, of course, themselves provide resources to. Uh, refugees, not just refugees in, in Ukraine, but refugees all over the, the world. Um, and they have tremendously great resources where you can look and find uh, ways that you can help refugees in lots of different crises. In addition to that, um, 
Charity Navigator, which is an organization that essentially consolidates information about public charities and private foundations in the United States. If you search their immigration and refugee page, you can find lots of great resources that they have where you can find organizations that are providing services to refugees. And I think on that point, then, it's it's fair to pause and comment on a few things that have come out uh, from this crisis that I think in some instances are presented as if they're either or propositions, and I don't think they necessarily have to be that case. So number one, there is the claim that uh, you know, this refugee crisis sort of overshadows other equally bad refugee crisis crises in the world. And of course, right now it is the one receiving all of the attention, um, but it doesn't make the crisis for Ukrainians worse or less dangerous or more dangerous, excuse me, than refugee crises uh, across the planet. And so But I think it's fair that a person can certainly acknowledge that there is a tremendous issue for the 2 million uh, Ukrainians who have fled their country, as there is a tremendous issue for refugees, for example, in Ethiopia or Congo or elsewhere. Um, And all of those refugees are humans. I know we call them refugees, but I think that's a bit of a clunky way that we are trying to distinguish people who live in their homes in their home country versus people who are fleeing some sort of disaster, uh, whether man-made or not. Um, But more fairly, these are human beings with human being needs. The second theme that has come out, which I think quite rightly so, is the theme that this, because of all the attention that's been given to Ukraine, shows the underlying racism in the way that the West in particular responds to refugee crises um, in the world, for example, the way that certain European countries responded to the refugee crisis in Syria while the Syrian civil war was happening at full bore. I think it's probably fair to point, point out that the Syrian civil war is not exactly over. It's just not receiving all the headlines and maybe not happening at the same level of ferocity that it was previously. And I think that's a fair point. I think, of course, racism exists. I completely agree with that. Um, But I don't think that the existence of racism means that Ukrainians are less deserving of help. I think what it actually means and should mean to most people who stop to think and acknowledge that there may be racist undertones in the way that uh, responses to these crises happen is to say, yes, it exists to acknowledge it. And that must mean that on an individual level, we have to redouble our effort to view all refugees as just human beings who have human being needs and are in a human being crisis that needs to be addressed. And so I think that's equally true of Ukrainians. It's equally true of refugees from any other country. And it doesn't really matter whether the country is developed or not cultured in a Western sense or not. It just doesn't matter. Um, Human beings are human beings and refugees all have human being needs and they're all just just people, just like us. So there's also a couple of um, points that have kind of come out. Interestingly, these are points that have come out about the crisis from the Russian point of view. Of course, Russia does what Russia does, and that is it comes up with, say, a list of 10 reasons for something, all of which are somewhat ridiculous. They might have half-truths built into them, and it's very difficult to respond tit for tat 
to all 10 of the reasons, and therefore if you can only respond to say three of them in a five minute soundbite, the other sevens somehow stand on their own as if they're validated, which of course is not true. But a couple of things that Putin in particular has pointed out for his justification of the war uh, maybe merit just a, a little bit of comment. So one is that his goal is to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, that that's the stated goal of this invasion of Ukraine, or in his words, special military operation in Ukraine. Um, now, historically, uh, Ukraine during World War II did have elements of nationalist groups, the most famous of which were led by an individual named Stepan Bandera. And they, these nationalist groups, at least initially at the beginning of World War II, aligned themselves with the Nazis and did aid the Nazis in their uh, pogroms of, of Jewish people in Ukraine and in uh, Poland, for that matter, uh, during World War II. That didn't last forever, and ultimately these, these nationalist groups kind of became enemies of both sides. And eventually, uh, Stepan Bandera, for, for example, was killed, assassinated by the USSR in the 1950s. Um, but it, it is true that some of these nationalist organizations were uh, Nazi-sympathizing organizations, at least at the beginning of World War II, at least initially in World War II. Now, I'm not trying to excuse that that was the case, because it, it's not for me to excuse it. But the fact also remains that in the context of where these Ukrainian nationalist groups were coming from, the communists were not exactly friendly. In fact, the communists were overtly enemies to nationalist groups like the Ukrainian nationalist groups, and the communists were responsible directly for the famines of the 1930s that killed millions of Ukrainians. These were enforced famines through collectivization of farms and then taking all of or taking too much of the uh, harvest from Ukraine into Russia and leaving not enough food in Ukraine. And millions of people died of starvation because of this. So in the context of that history, these nationalist groups saw the Nazis as the counterweight to the communists and a way to get rid of the communists, of course. And uh, so that there is that history. And it is true when, when uh, Putin sort of points out, say, Nazis in Ukraine, that there were certain groups in Ukraine who aligned themselves with the Nazis, again, at least initially, during World War II. And it is true that there are far-right groups in Ukraine, and some of them are nationalist groups. And some of those groups have formed, or did form in 2014, um, military uh, militias to fight against the Russian-backed, and overtly Russian-backed, and equipped separatist groups in Donetsk and Luhansk. And that was in a moment where the, the Ukrainian military really had no structure and was not capable of fighting that war and certainly not capable of fighting what then was the initial uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, albeit in Donetsk and Luhansk or Donbass. That was a proxy war in Crimea. That was an overt invasion of Ukraine. And so these militias were actually a key factor in Ukraine um, retaining, pro retaining land and preventing the expansion of the, the claim to property of these Russian-backed separatist groups in Donbass or in the Donetsk and Luhansk areas of, of Ukraine. 
Since then, of course, the Ukrainian military has been built up and organized quite handily, uh, and it is now much more of a state state run and state organized and controlled military than it used to be, although these militia groups are allowed to operate within the larger state military apparatus, um, partly because they are experienced fighters, and I think partly because there, there are many different political organizations and factions in Ukraine, just like in any other country, and some of those are very nationalist in, uh, in nature, just like some of these militias are. So no, no different from any other country, to be, to be frank. But essentially, the Putin argument goes even further to, to, to say that any Ukrainian who is anti-Russia and not in favor of, say, Russia controlling Ukraine and dictating its policy economically and militarily uh, and culturally is in, therefore a Nazi, which of course is ridiculous and absurd. And the idea of then demilitarizing Ukraine, of course, itself is ridiculously absurd because it is in fact Russia's actions in Ukraine that caused Ukraine to become as militarized, quote unquote militarized, really all that means is having a much stronger military than they used to, but militarized as they, as they are now because all of that was a response to Russia's actions in Donbass and in Crimea. Before that, as I pointed out, Ukraine had a fairly weak military. In fact, it's one of only four countries in the history of the planet to voluntarily give up uh, its, its nuclear weapons. And Ukraine really didn't have an aspiration to have a tremendously powerful military. Part of that was because they suffer from a lot of corruption. And part of that is just money. They just don't have the money or the need, really. They didn't have big in military enemies. Uh, and they had assurances when they gave up their nuclear arms from both the West and Russia, that they'd be protected, which of course didn't pan out for them quite the way that they would have expected. Um, so some of the arguments coming out from Russia for going into the war are just little half-truths that ultimately try to paint with a very broad brush uh, in very typical Putin style to make broad, absolute comments on some very complex situation and then just sort of run with it because it's very difficult to argue against these absolute comments uh, because the comeback, particularly for people of Putin's ilk, is often some sort of form of whataboutism that again includes some kind of half-truth like, well, what about the Stepan Bandera groups or what about the right-wing militias? Well, yes, they exist, but they're a small, small portion of Ukraine. Interestingly as well, um, when Russia invaded Ukraine the first time in 2014 and took uh, or annexed Crimea, uh, in essence what it did was it, it made Ukraine more na nationalistic from a political perspective, not just from a military perspective or say a linguistic perspective, but from a political perspective because it took areas of Ukraine that historically voted for pro-Russian candidates in pro-Russia or Russia-friendly parties and, and attached them to Russia or essentially removed them from the political process in Ukraine entirely. So, of course, the, the result of that is that Ukraine became more nationalistic. So it's sort of like uh, it's a little bit of a chicken-and-the-egg type argument, and it really can't be justified. The other argument that has come out is that, well, 
Russia was forced to act because of NATO's expansion. And of course, Russia wasn't forced to do anything. They have chosen to do what they're doing, which is horrific. And the fact that any country would choose to do what Russia is doing to Ukraine voluntarily is terrible. And I don't need to hear the whataboutisms about American foreign policy and action in other countries. I'm aware of all of that. And I agree that we have not necessarily comported ourselves very well. And frankly, in a lot of ways, Russia uh, takes pages out of the American superpower playbook and the way that it operates in other countries. And that's playing out in Ukraine. But the expansion of NATO, of course, very aggressively throughout the 90s and the 2000s um, has, has led to the situation in Ukraine being as complex as it is and Ukraine becoming as important to Russia from its perspective and perhaps to the, to the West to a certain degree from its perspective as Ukraine is now. It's a bit of the last land grab for NATO. NATO's not going to have uh, Georgia. Georgia was wanting to join NATO, of course, and then Russia invaded Georgia. Ukraine equally was interested in joining NATO, and NATO was courting Ukraine to join, uh, and then Russia invaded uh, Ukraine in 2014, in, in essence, to prevent that from happening. Um, but NATO's own policies in the face of Russia's stated position that it, it would not accept Ukraine as a member of NATO has somewhat led to this circumstance, although again, I, I'm not excusing that Putin and Russia have voluntarily decided to invade Ukraine. I do think that it's likely if the shoe was on the other foot, and for example, Mexico was going to join a military alliance with China or, uh, or Russia, uh, and house uh, Russian and Chinese missiles and troops and bases in Mexico near the U.S. border that the U.S. would be strongly against that and even contemplate taking action somewhat similar, although I don't, I don't want to say identically, but somewhat similar uh, to the action that Russia is taking in Ukraine. And, and by that, I mean probably violent military action. Uh, I think that's probably true. And the history of the way the U.S. has acted in its worldwide affairs sort of supports that that could certainly have been the reaction of the U.S. under that hypothetical. Okay, now stepping out of that hypothetical, which we're not dealing with right now, in reality, Russia has done something that is just morally objectionable and should be morally objectionable regardless of who the player is. Uh, it's tremendously bad. It is tremendously harsh on the Ukrainian people who absolutely do not deserve any of what they're getting. They have their problems. They, they have problems of corruption. They have problems of racism. They have problems of internal strife based on sort of cultural and ethnic lines. They, they have all of those problems, all the complex problems of a complex society that has existed for thousands of years. But none of that is justification for what is happening to them now. So uh, I hope some of that is useful. I, I am not saying that I'm an expert on this topic. This has just been a, a topic, as I said, that's been uh, of interest to me because of my connection to the country and continued interest in the country. Um, it, it hurts deeply for me to see what is happening to Ukraine and to people there and humans there. And it hurts deeply for me to think about what is happening to human beings in many different refugee uh, situations and, and war-torn situations throughout the world. Ukraine is not 
uh, unique in that particular sense. Um, but I hope if, uh, and, I'll, and I'll include in the, the show notes the links to the, these resources that I mentioned, I hope if you're interested in trying to help in any one of these crises, if you're, you feel uh, uh, interested or compelled, I don't know if compelled is the right word, but interested in uh, helping out financially with any of the organizations that lend assistance in these circumstances, you'll find some resources there that'll be useful for you. Of course, there are all sorts of tax planning uh, techniques that can be used to make those sorts of donations. We've talked about them on the podcast, but I don't think that's really the important point under the circumstances. The more important point, I think, is is trying to have a measure of human compassion and empathy for a horrific situation that does not appear like it is going to be resolved in short order, unfortunately. It appears that it is going to grind on for quite some time and quite to the detriment of both Ukrainians and Russians. And I, I feel bad for Russians as well. I have friends in Russia that I speak to on an almost weekly basis. And I feel terrible for Russian people. And I feel terrible for Russian uh, troops that are being sent to Ukraine where they're dying uh, in a completely unjust and unjustifiable, senseless war that does not need to happen. And so it's a horrible situation on all on all accounts on both sides of the border, uh, and you know my my heart really aches for for people in both countries. Uh, I think that also sorry warrants maybe a comment about some of the anti-Russian stuff that's going on right now. I mean I get that people are upset with Russia, the country, um, but there's quite a bit of anti-Russian sentiment being targeted towards individuals who happen to be of Russian descent or happen to speak Russian. And I really don't think that's fair. Uh, Russian people generally are like people everywhere. They just have the normal uh, wants and desires uh, and they're lovely people. And uh, so they're no different than you or I or anybody else, but they don't necessarily control the actions of their government either. And so it's Although it's easy and can be um, handy to sort of conflate the actions of the Russian government and army onto all Russian people, it's not accurate and it's really not fair to them. So be, I would ask anybody to be slightly more circumspect before uh, exhibiting any sort of discrimination towards Russian individuals unless you're quite certain that that Russian individual is supporting the, the war effort, for example. Um, okay, well, I'll leave it there. I appreciate you listening to this uh, this little monologue on Ukraine, which you were probably not expecting this topic to be a topic of conversation for this podcast. But such as it is, it is. Uh, I appreciate you all, and I look forward to catching up with you later. Bye. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.